Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. On the video, it speaks for itself. It's a comical look at how sometimes we function as a church, sometimes we function as Christians, and this whole issue of people doing their part. And so I want to ask a question this morning. I think it's a very important question. Maybe it's a question you've never had asked to yourself, but it's, this is the question. What is spiritual maturity? What is spiritual maturity? If someone were to come up to you this morning and ask you, what does a growing, maturing follower of Christ look like? What are the marks of a maturing disciple who's growing in Christ? What would you tell them would be the marks of a maturing Christian, of a growing Christian? What would be the marks of spiritual maturity? And notice that I use the word maturing. Because none of us have ever matured to the fullest extent that we could be. None of us will ever be totally mature. All of us are in this process of becoming mature in Christ. And so, what does a growing, maturing follower of Jesus Christ look like? What is spiritual maturity? In our Bibles, in the book of Colossians, where I ask you to turn, I want you to look at verses 28 and 29. Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. And I want to preface this by saying that these verses here are really some of the life verses that I come back to over and over again in my ministry as pastor. God has birthed these passages of Scripture in my heart as to what I am to be as your pastor, what this church is to be, what we're all about as Emmanuel Baptist Church, what fuels us as a church we find in these two short verses. What I'm about, what this church is about, what is our purpose. So let's read Colossians 1, 28-29. Him, speaking of Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone... And teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Now, what is Paul's aim here? He's very clear. Paul's ministry aim is to present everyone mature in Christ. That everyone connected in Paul's ministry would be a growing, maturing follower of Christ. And that's my heartbeat. It's the heartbeat of this church. That everyone connected with Emmanuel Baptist Church would be mature in Christ. And then what Paul does here is he lists three ways that he does that. Three ways that Paul goes about making sure that people are maturing. The first thing he says is preaching. We preach Christ. We proclaim Christ. We, we as a church are unapologetic about the fact that we preach Jesus. We have a preaching ministry here where we preach the word of God. We preach Jesus. We exalt Jesus. The second thing that Paul says he does here is teaching. Now, teaching is a little bit different than preaching. Preaching is more uh, an act of, of, of inspiring people, and it affects more their heart. It affects more their will. Teaching is more affecting the mind, instructing people, instruction on how to live the Christian life. And then the third thing he says is he does is he warns. Maybe your translation uses the word admonish. 
warning and admonishing. This is really where we have the freedom to come and address sin in each other's lives, where there's a culture here at Emmanuel where we can repent before each other, we can confess, we can, we can get in each other's lives, and we can confront, and we can graciously love each other as we point out sin in each other's lives. So this is what we are to be about as a church, preaching, teaching, warning. What's the end result? So that everyone connected with Emmanuel Baptist Church would be mature, would be maturing, would be growing. And Paul says it's hard work. Notice what he says there in verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul says it's agonizing work to do this. But we have the promise that God's energy, God's power works within us as a church to bring about this maturity, to bring about this growth. So here's the problem that I have as a pastor. Here's the ultimate problem that I have. It's an amazing problem. I can't do anything to bring about growth in your life. I can't reach down into the inner recesses of your heart and cause growth. I can't bring about the transformation. I can't make you mature. I can't do any of that. The only thing I can do is I can preach, I can teach, and I can warn, but the Holy Spirit has to come and do the supernatural work of bringing about maturity, bringing about growth. And so God is in the business of bringing about maturity and the lives of those who claim the name of Christ. And so the question this morning is, what is spiritual maturity. If everyone is to be presented mature in Christ, what does that look like? What does it mean to be a mature follower of Christ? What is spiritual maturity? Hebrews chapter 13 is a very key passage of scripture because it links the cross with maturity. And I don't want to get those two things confused. I want to link them together. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 through 21 says this. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Okay, Jesus Christ by his blood is going to do something in our lives. What does it say? He will equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Because of the cross of Christ, because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done by his blood, he has equipped us with everything that we need to be a maturing, growing disciple of Jesus Christ, to do things that are pleasing to God. Now, this morning, I just want to give you a surgeon's general warning. I'm going to give you some some challenges this morning. I'm going to lay down the gauntlet this morning on some issues of spiritual maturity, but before I do that, and I've been your pastor here for almost nine years, and you should know that everything that we do is rooted back in the gospel. Everything that we do is rooted in Christ's finished work on the cross. And so I don't want you to go out of here this morning thinking that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do these things without the power of the gospel. So Jesus Christ, in the gospel, by his shed blood on the cross and by his resurrection, will equip us with grace through the power of the Holy Spirit to do what the Scripture calls us to do in spiritual maturity. And so I want you just to be, to be encouraged this morning that you can do what God calls you to do by being a growing, maturing disciple only through the power of the gospel, only through the shed blood of Christ, only through the finished work of Christ. Now you may ask yourself, what does this have to do with Genesis chapter 14? Well, there's a lot that we're going to see in Genesis 14. 
But before we get to Genesis 14, I just wanted to lay down a foundation that Genesis 14 calls us to spiritual maturity. And before we get there, we need to realize that we can't do it without Jesus. So here's the big issue for this morning. Here's the main idea. Here's the big ticket item of what Genesis 14 is pointing us towards. It's simply this. Because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, we have been equipped to display spiritual maturity. You and I can be spiritually mature. We can display spiritual maturity. We've been equipped to be a growing, maturing disciple of Christ. We can be a growing, mature disciple. Now, what does this have to do with Genesis 14? Well, let's turn back to Genesis 14. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week. If you remember from last week, Abraham and Lot separate. Lot chooses to settle in Sodom because he was mesmerized by the allurements of this world. Abraham goes the other direction. God blesses Abraham, takes him through the promised land, and, and Abraham builds an altar. And then as you get into chapter 14, you find out that four kings from the east go to war with five kings from the south. Now, there's a lot of names, and I'm not going to read the first part of Genesis 14 because there's a lot of names. The main thing is four kings go to war against five kings, and they have all these weird names. But here's the important thing. In the process of that, Lot, Abraham's nephew, gets captured. He gets abducted. He gets kidnapped. He gets captured. He gets taken away. And so let's pick up the story here in verse 10 because Lot was lured into settling his family in Sodom. And if you know anything about the Bible, you know things don't go well for Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a wicked city. And so because he's affiliated himself with Sodom, Sodom is one of those cities that gets taken captive. And so let's pick up in Genesis 14, verse 10. I've saved you the privilege of reading through all those weird names because I don't know if I can pronounce them myself either. So here we go, verse 10. Now, the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits or bitumen pits, And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eskol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard this, that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Deloriamor, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, the God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, 
Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. Now, what in the world does this have to do with spiritual maturity? What I want us to see this morning are three distinguishing marks of spiritual maturity that we see evidenced in this passage of Scripture. Three things emerge that will help us to see what does a spiritually mature believer look like. And here's the first. We should display spiritual maturity in courageous leadership. Courageous leadership. Now, in verse 12, we find out that Lot is living in Sodom. Lot is a passive character in these stories. Lot does not lead his family to righteousness. Lot does not step up to the plate and provide spiritual leadership. He's passive. He settles his family in Sodom. You think being that close to Sodom, he would have said, family, we need to probably pack up and get out of here because this is a wicked city. He's passively sitting there. He gets captured, taken into captivity. But notice in contrast, what does Abraham do? Abraham rises up as a man of courageous leadership. Look at verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them. Maybe your translation says he mustered the troops. Now, we don't know how Abraham trained these men, but these are 318 household servants who Abraham trained to be military guys, and they go in and do this nighttime raid where they actually take over these kings, and they, re- they, they, they release Lot, and they, they bring him back. So Abraham emerges here as this man of action. I'm going to take action. I'm going to be a courageous leader. Let's get our men together. Let's go pursue. We are going to be leading the charge to bring back Lot. Abraham is a man of courageous leadership. He goes against these kings with 318 men. We're not told how many troops were part of the armies that he went against, but Abraham said, I'm going to take the 318 men that I have, and we're going to go get Lot back. We're going to take action. We are going to be courageous. And so he emerges as a courageous leader, while Lot is this passive follower. So one of the marks of spiritual maturity, leadership. am I losing my signal? Courageous leadership. So let me address fathers this morning. Your father here. Fathers, God has ordained that you be the spiritual leader of your family. You're to love your wife. You are to serve your wife. You are to love your family, to love your children, to serve them. And you must never abdicate or never give up that spiritual authority that God has given you to be a courageous leader of your family. We need men to not be just passive followers. We need dads and grandfathers and men to stand up and be courageous leaders in our culture. We have a dearth of leadership in our nation. We have a dearth of leadership in our churches. And dearth just means we don't have a lot. We don't have a lot of leadership in our nation. And it starts in the home, men, as courageous 
leaders. Think about the courageous leadership of William Wilberforce. Do you know who William Wilberforce was? In the late 1700s, he led the charge against slavery in England. Basically, he had a passion to end slavery in England. And so he was a member of parliament, and he was a strong, dedicated Christian. And he boldly stood against the racism in his day. It was lucrative to have a slave trade. He stood against the powers that be with courageous leadership. And actually, here's what happened. From 1789 to 1805, he nearly had 20 of his bills defeated in Parliament. But that didn't stop him. Finally, in 1807, Parliament abolished the slave trade in Britain. And just three days before he died, there was the final passage of the Emancipation Act, where it was totally a reality in the British Empire that slavery was abolished. And listen to what he said. He said these words. These are words of a courageous leader. So enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable did the slave trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I, from this time forward, determined that I would never rest until I had, def- I had effected its abolition. What he's saying is, I don't care what opposition I have. I don't care what it costs me. I've got a burning desire in my heart to courageously lead against slavery and to see it abolished no matter what may come. And it was a reality at the end of his life. So he was a leader. Now, this doesn't just apply to fathers, but it applies to all of us as Christians. We live in a culture, let me just say it, we live in a culture of cowards. There's not a lot of Christians that want to stand up for truth, to be a voice of righteousness in a culture that does not want to hear truth. Now, I'm not saying that we're obnoxious about it. I'm not saying that we need to be mean-spirited or we need to be arrogant, we need to be humble, but we need men and women of the truth to stand up for truth and to have some backbone and to have some fortitude and to be able to stand for righteousness in a culture where there is not righteousness. And don't, you may not think of yourself as a leader. You may be thinking, you know, courageous leadership. I'm not a leader. I'm just a housewife. Or I'm not a leader. I'm just, I'm just like an employee at my, at my job, and I don't have any influence. I'm not a leader. Let me just tell you what leadership is. It's very simple. Leadership is influence. There's somebody in your life that you're influencing. And all leadership is is influence. Are you influencing those around you for godliness, for the gospel? Are you being a courageous leader where God has placed you? Are you using what God has given you to influence those around you for godliness? To not be a coward, to not shrink back. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 16, 13-14 says. I love this passage of scripture. Paul says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. But then notice he says, let all that you do be done in love. So have backbone, be courageous, step up to the plate and be a leader, but do it with love. Don't do it with arrogance, don't do it with mean-spirited, but have courageous leadership. And so I'm burdened for us as a culture, I'm burdened for us as a church, when are we going to see God raise up the courageous leaders? And I'm thinking that in this younger generation, there's going to have to be some seriously courageous leaders because the way our culture's going, our culture's not going to want to hear the message of the gospel. Would that God raise up from the younger generation courageous leaders that will lead their families, that will lead their churches, that will lead our nation. We need courageous leadership. So the first mark of Spiritual maturity is courageous leadership. Here's the second mark of spiritual maturity. We should display spiritual maturity in correct 
worship. Correct worship. Not just courageous leadership, but correct worship. Now, we see this in this mysterious figure called King Melchizedek. Look at verse 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered you into your enemies, into your hand. Boom. He's off the scene. Who is Melchizedek? His name means king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem, which means king of peace. His name means king of righteousness, king of peace. He is none other than the king of Jerusalem. This is before Jerusalem was founded by David. And he's called a priest of the Most High God. The first time the word priest shows up in the Bible. And it's very interesting. This is the only time Melchizedek shows up in the Bible. Now, he's mentioned in other places, but he doesn't have a genealogy. We don't know who he is. He pops up on the scene. He's a king of Salem. He's a priest. He gives Abraham some bread and wine, blesses him, and then he's off the scene, never to be heard of again. Who is this King Melchizedek? Who is this shadowy, mysterious figure? Well, all throughout history, there's been different viewpoints of who he is. Ancient Jewish tradition links him with um, the archangel Michael. They say he's actually Michael the archangel. Martin Luther thought he was actually Shem, one of Noah's sons. If you go back and do the math of the genealogy in Genesis 11, you find out that Shem lived 35 years after Abraham died. Some people even think that this was a pre-incarnate Christ. I don't take any of those views. I think he was a real person, but I think he's a type and a shadow and a picture of Jesus. He's called the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Jesus is our Prince of Peace, and he's our King of Righteousness. I don't have time to do it this morning, but if you go back to Hebrews chapter 7, the writer of Hebrews does this whole treatment of who Melchizedek is and how Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Jesus is the greater Melchizedek. But let's just read the blessing of Melchizedek and just find out what Melchizedek says here in the text. Number one, he recognizes that Abraham is God's man because he says, Blessed be Abraham. And he recognizes something about God. He calls God, God most high. Now, this is a culture of paganism. So somehow he recognizes that God is the God most high. And then he recognizes God's creatorship, possessor, creator of heavens and earth. Blessed be the God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. This is a confession here of God being the one and only true living God who's absolutely sovereign and the creator of the universe. In a pagan culture that Abraham was living in, it's amazing that this man, Melchizedek, stood up and said, I'm going to worship the one true God correctly. I'm going to acknowledge that he's the most high God. He's the one true God, and I'm going to bless him, and I'm going to acknowledge that he is the creator. Listen to what Psalm 7, 17 says. I will give to the Lord... The thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. He's God Most High. And let me ask you a question. In our evangelical world in which we live, is God puny or is God Most High? If you were to determine what Christianity was about by watching Christian television, reading Christian books, surfing Christian internet, what would you determine? That God is puny and that man is exalted and that everything centers upon man. 
We live in a man-centered culture. But what he's acknowledging here is that God is God most high. He's the most high God. He's the only God. He's the one true living God. Now, can you worship God incorrectly? Can you worship the right God incorrectly? Most definitely. You can worship the most high God incorrectly. You worship the most high God incorrectly when you fail to bow in awe that he is the most high God. That you don't give him the sovereignty due his name. You can worship the most high God incorrectly when you don't believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation, not one of many ways. You can worship the most high God incorrectly when you don't bless him. And to bless God basically means you just acknowledge that God is a God of goodness, a God of grace, and you honor him and you bless him. So let me ask you a question this morning. And maybe you've never thought about this before. Here's the question. How do you personally prepare for worship on Sunday mornings when you walk into this place? How do you prepare? Do you kind of just barge into this place and say, okay, I'm hoping that the praise team gets me going. I hope Pastor Sean's got something good to say. Do you kind of walk into this place expecting others to get you going Or do you spend the time necessary to prepare yourself to come in here to worship the Most High God? Now, there's nothing wrong with asking the praise team to help you. There's nothing wrong with listening to a sermon. But let me just say this. You're only going to get out of a worship service what you put into it. If you haven't come into this place prepared, you haven't come into this place ready, then you may need to ask yourself a question. Do I just kind of casually walk in here Or when I walk into this place, have I spent the night before in prayer? Have I spent Sunday morning in prayer? Am I geared in when I walk through those doors that I'm ready to meet the most high God in worship? And it's a sacred time where we're gathered as God's people and God wants to do something special. Or do we just kind of casually walk in and expect the show to begin in a few minutes and we passively sit and we watch? Among Dutch pastors in the old days, they would say something kind of hard to translate in English, but they would recite this to their congregations. They would say this, if you pray me full, I'll preach you full. If you pray me full, I'll preach you full. And I'm not trying to be selfish here, but how many of you are praying for me? How many of you are on your knees Sunday night praying for me as I bring the word? How many of you are on your knees on Sunday mornings praying that God would bring lost people in here? How many of you are praying that God would show up in our worship services? How many of you are praying that God would do something special, that when guests come in here, they're felt welcome? When lost people come in here, they're hearing the word of God, that God would show up in power? Are you praying that the word would go out in power? Are you praying that God would do something very special? Welsh pastor Jeffrey Thomas has said this, We can only erect the altar, but it's God's prerogative to send the fire. We can only get things ready. We can only prepare ourselves for worship. God has the prerogative to bring the fire, but I would rather come prepared so that God can set the fire. Are you worshiping God correctly? That's that's a mark of spiritual maturity. Are you just kind of casually, flippantly going through life, or do you bow and worship before the Most High God and recognize that He is absolutely sovereign and you give your life to Him in worship? And especially on the Lord's Day, when you come into worship, are you geared in and ready for God to do something? Are you prayed up? Are you praying for me? Are you praying for the praise team? Are you praying for your growth group leaders? Are you praying that God would do something special when we come together on the Lord's Day morning? Okay, so what's the first mark? Courageous leadership. What's the second mark? Correct worship. Okay, third mark, I'm moving from preaching to stepping on toes, okay? So are you ready? Here's the third mark. 
We should display spiritual maturity in confident stewardship. Now, I want you to notice the contrast between what Melchizedek says and what the king of Sodom says. What are the first words out of Melchizedek's mouth? Verse 19. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, the God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high. The first words out of Melchizedek's mouth are blessed. What are the first words out of the king of Sodom's mouth? Look at verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me. Give me. Just those two words show a distinction between a spiritually mature Christian and a not-so-spiritually mature Christian. Do the words that come out of your mouth be blessed or give me? Blessed or give me? Now, I can't navigate through this passage of Scripture without addressing verse 20. Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Abraham tithed. Abraham tithed all the spoils to King Melchizedek. This is before Moses and the Old Testament institution of the tithe. And so what prompted Abraham to give a tithe? What is the tithe? What is financial stewardship? I'm glad you asked, as opposed to heading for the doors. Abraham was a man who exercised spiritual maturity in that he understood that God owned everything anyway, and he chose to give a portion back to God in a tithe. So giving starts with the heart, and then it moves to action. So let's just stop and talk about financial giving of tithes and offerings for a moment. And by the way, if you're new to Emmanuel and you think, man, this guy always talks about money, I very rarely talk about money or tithing or finances. I bet you if you go back and listen to nine years' worth of messages, on one hand, you may count the times that I've specifically addressed tithing, giving, financial stewardship. But when you do verse-by-verse preaching through the Bible, you can't just skip over something. And a pastor's got to address tithing, doesn't he? Especially when it's there in the Bible. So let's talk about tithing this morning for a moment. In the Old Testament, the tithe was actually to fund the temple system. You had Israel under a theocracy where you had priests, you had the festivals, you had the sacrificial system, you had the nation living under God's rule. And so there were more than just one tithe. As a matter of fact, there were three tithes. The first tithe in the Old Testament was just a tenth of everything off the top. A tenth of your livestock, of your money, of your possessions. It was a tenth that you gave, and that was to fund the Levite priests. That was to to fund the priesthood so that the priests could get their living by doing the sacrifices. That was the first tithe. Leviticus 27.30, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It's holy to the Lord. Okay, the second tithe, the second 10%, was to fund the national festivals, the holy days, the religious festivals. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 14 and you can find out about that. Then, every third year, there was another 10% tax, or tithe, and this was the poor tax. This was the welfare system of Israel. Every third year, they would have a 10% tithe in order to fund those that were poor in the nation. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 14, and you can find out about that. And then there was also the temple tax. So reality in the Old Testament system, it was more than just 10%. When you added up all of the giving in the Old Testament system, it was more like 25%. 
It was a mandated 25% to give to the Lord through the temple system. Now, that was the tithing system. On top of that, they had what were called free will offerings. Free will offerings were where you felt just out of, the, out of your heart you would give above and beyond your tithe just because God had motivated you or led you to give. So you would give free will, a free will offering. So that's why we call it tithes and offerings. Now, let's make a connection to the New Testament because I've heard many people say to me, we're no longer bound by the tithe. That's an Old Testament reality. God doesn't expect us to tithe anymore. And so there's no mandated tithe anymore because we're New Testament Christians, not Old Testament Christians, so we shouldn't tithe. Let me just um, address a few issues this morning. There's an infamous bumper sticker that says, Tithe if you love Jesus, anyone can honk. First of all, Jesus does not abolish the tithe. Find me a passage of scripture where Jesus says, you've heard it said, give 10%, but I say to you, give 1%, or however many percent. As a matter of fact, if you go back to Luke eleven forty two, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees. He says, but woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Jesus is saying, you should have tithed. I'm not saying don't tithe. Just tithe with the right attitude. Make sure you tithe, but do it with an attitude of love that you don't neglect the other issues of justice for the poor. So Jesus doesn't say here, Pharisees, you really shouldn't tithe because it's no longer valid now that I'm here. It's the Old Testament system. No, he says, go ahead and fulfill your obligation to tithe. Now, secondly, Paul does not specifically argue for a tithe, but he does argue for proportional giving meaning that you give a proportion of your income, and if your income goes up, the proportion goes up. If your income goes down, the proportion goes down. He doesn't give a percentage. He just talks about proportionality. 1 Corinthians 16.2. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something in aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now, let me just say this. I don't want to be legalistic this morning, and say, we're going to have a legalistic standard of 10%. And the reason I'm not going to be legalistic and say 10%, because here's what I believe. 10% is the bare minimum. It is the bare minimum. If it was good enough for the Old Testament sacrificial system before Jesus came, how much more now under the New Covenant would that be a bare minimum? And let me just say this. I'm thankful Jesus didn't tithe his blood. He just didn't give 10% of his blood. He gave it all. According to Barna Research and other places that keep statistics on giving and trends, do you know what the average person gives to the Lord percentage-wise? The average Christian. Anybody want to guess? 3%. The average Christian gives 3% to the Lord. And here's what I hear people say, and I, and I may be stepping on some toes this morning, and I gave you a warning. A lot of times when people say to me, we're not bound by the tithe anymore, they use that as an excuse not to give or to give lower. And I would say that tithing 10% is a bare minimum, and even upon the tithe, you have offerings that God may want you to give as a free will offering. And so what I want to do is I want to draw your attention to Malachi 3, 8 through 10, because you have a very interesting passage of Scripture where God issues forth a challenge. Nowhere else in the Bible will you find this challenge from God. As a matter of fact, in other places in the Bible, you're not supposed to do this with God. Jesus, when he was tempted in the wilderness, said you should not... You should not tempt the Lord, your God. 
But here's where God tells us to do that. Malachi 3, 8 through 10. Will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. This is the only time in the Bible where God says, test him. And it comes with tithing. So let me lay down a gauntlet for you this morning and issue you a challenge. I challenge you as your pastor over the next 90 days to practice tithing of your tithe to Emmanuel Baptist Church through the, through the tithes and offerings of this church and just see what God does. Now, I'm not a health, wealth, and prosperity pastor where I say everything's going to go great and you're going to get a million bucks and, and, and sow your seed to my ministry. No, I'm just saying practice biblical financial stewardship and for the next 90 days, give a tithe and just see what the Lord does. Because I'm a personal testimony of how God blesses a family when they tithe. Proverbs 3.9 says this, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce. Honor the Lord with your wealth. Early in our marriage, when Don and I were first married, we did not practice tithing. We practiced what you call tipping. About every three months, we'd feel guilty that we hadn't given and so we'd write a paltry check out and we'd give it because we felt guilty and and we never practiced systematic financial tithing to our local church we just didn't do it and then we kind of got ourselves into some trouble financially i was working two jobs and don was working one job so we had three jobs and we were having a hard time making ends meet with three jobs went down to one job Don ended up working part-time but stayed, stayed home most of the time. We practiced tithing systematically, painfully, writing that check out to the church every week or every two weeks. And the problems that we had with three incomes, we didn't have problems with one income. God was able to meet our needs. God was able to bless us. Now, we have not become millionaires. I don't drive around in a jet I don't have a television ministry, all those things you see from televangelists. I'm just saying this. There's a biblical principle of tithing and giving to the Lord where if you practice that, God will bless you. And so here's the challenge. And again, I don't see who gives. So I'm not going to be looking next week to say, oh, who? okay, that person gave. Let me just lay the, lay the record straight. I talk about this in my new members class. I have no idea who gives what in this church, and I do not want to know. There's only one person that knows that, and that's our financial secretary, and she has to know because she counts the checks and does the deposits. I absolutely have no idea who gives what in this church. I'm just laying forth the challenge this morning for you to practice tithing for 90 days and just see what God does. Now, we've also added something new to our church's ministry. We've prayed about this as elders. We've talked about this as staff. We realize that a lot of people don't carry checks anymore. So we've added e-giving or electronic giving as, 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 an, as an option here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. And basically what you do, if you decide to do this, it's totally voluntary. You go to our website, and there's a tab on there called Give. 
You click on give, and you have to go up and set up an account with your, you set up an email and password, and then you can go in, you can do electronic check, you can do your debit card, you can set it to go on, um, on a cycle, you can do one-time giving. This just allows you to, to give in different streams as opposed to just the traditional way. Now, we're not going to stop passing the plate because some people still write their checks out. We're just trying to allow the, the new generation of younger people that don't carry checks, that maybe carry debit cards, to be able to practice financial giving, and we want to make it convenient. It's a secure website, and we're just asking you to pray about using that if God would so lead you. And so I don't want to belabor the point. I just want to say that one of the things that that spiritual maturity is all about is, here's this. You can tell if a person is spiritually mature by looking at their bank account. Where do they spend their money? What do they value? Because the Bible says where your treasure is, there your heart is. And, and I used to be apologetic about teaching about tithing and giving. I used to be like, I'm apologizing. I've got to the point where I don't want to apologize anymore because Jesus spoke about it and about one-third of his parables were about tithing, giving, finances, stewardship. And so I just want to honor what Jesus says, okay? So what is spiritual maturity? It's courageous leadership. It's correct worship. And it's confident stewardship. So maybe we need to do some serious evaluation this morning in our lives. How are we doing at leadership? Fathers, how are you doing at leading your families? How are you using the influence that God has given you in your lives as a leader? Correct worship. How are you worshiping the Lord? How are you preparing to worship? How is your lifestyle a life of worshiping the Most High God? And then financial stewardship. Where are you this morning? Are you faithfully giving to the Lord through the local church. So I'm asking you to kind of evaluate your life this morning and ask yourself, am I spiritually mature based upon these criteria? Now there's a whole lot more we could talk about spiritual maturity. We could go to the New Testament and find a bunch, but we see here these three marks. Courage, leadership, correct worship, and confident stewardship. Now before he finished high school, he was a multi-millionaire. His name was William Borden. I don't know if you've heard of him. He was the heir to the Borden Dairy Company. And he was set to inherit millions and millions of dollars. And in 1904, when he graduated from high school, his parents sent him on a cruise around the world. And as this young man was going around the world on this cruise, he began to see the poverty and the unreached people groups and people living in Muslim nations in Hindu nations, in Buddhist nations. And he began to have a heart for the nations. He he began to heart to want to be a missionary. And so he wrote back to his family saying, God's calling me to be a missionary. His parents says, no way. Absolutely not. You have been groomed your entire life to take over the family business. You're not going to waste your life being a missionary to the nations. So his family didn't take the the news very well. Well, he came home and went to Yale University. And later on, he went to seminary. And he totally renounced all of his personal wealth. He got rid of all of his inheritance. He decided he wasn't going to take a dime. And he wrote these words in his Bible. No reserves. No reserves. And so in time, God put a passion in William Borden's life to go to China. And also to minister to Muslims. And so a few days before he was to set sail... His father became very ill, and his family said, you've got to come back and run the family business. 
your father's about to die. And they wanted to talk him out of being a missionary. He wrote in his Bible another set of words. No retreat. No reserves. No retreat. He was sailing to China. He had to stop in Egypt on the way. And there he contracted cerebral meningitis and he died within three weeks. He never made it to the mission field. He never made it to China. He never got to live his life's dream. His family found the Bible and they opened the fly leaf at the back of the Bible and they found these three words. No reserves, no retreat, no regrets. No reserves, no retreat, no regrets. You see, his desire to follow God outstripped all of his desire for worldly possessions. His main thing was to be, I'm going to be a courageous leader to go to the nations. I'm going to worship God, the Most High God. And I'm going to practice financial stewardship and I'm going to have no regrets doing it. So as you think about your spiritual maturity this morning, could it be said of you? that you're living with no reserves, no retreat, and no regrets for the glory of God. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning as we pray and ask the Lord to come and give us help in this area of spiritual maturity. None of us are as mature as we'd like to be. All of us are on this path to maturity. And so maybe there's one area this morning that's really spoken to you. Maybe it's in the area of leadership. Maybe God has birthed in your heart a stirring to to, to be a person of influence no matter where you are. As a father, as a mother, as a single mom, as a single dad, as a grandparent, wherever you are, would you use your influence for godly purposes and be a courageous leader? Maybe it's the issue of worship. Maybe your life is not really reflecting a passionate worship for the Most High God. Maybe you're just kind of flippantly going through life and you flippantly come in here and you're not really prepared to worship. And for many others, maybe it's the issue of stewardship. Maybe you don't practice tithing or giving. Maybe you don't financially practice that that stewardship and God may be burning in your heart a desire to take a 90-day challenge to tithe. Whatever God would do this morning, the ultimate goal is that we would all be presented mature in Christ that every single one of us would be maturing in Christ. So spend some time examining your heart this morning to see where the Lord would lead you in this area of spiritual maturity. So spend some time in prayer in Christ. My desire as pastor is to, like Paul, present everyone mature in Christ. Father, I can only preach and teach and warn. I can't reach into people's hearts. I can't even reach into my own heart and cause anything to happen. It's got to be you, Holy Spirit, doing a deep work of grace in our lives. And we know it only comes through the finished work of Christ because, Jesus, you've promised to equip us with everything that we need through your blood, through your cross, through your gospel to do the good works that are pleasing to the Father. And, Lord, we know it's pleasing to you to be courageous leaders, to exercise leadership. Lord, we know it's pleasing to you to to correctly worship you as the Most High God, like Melchizedek did. And Lord, we know it's pleasing to you to to practice financial stewardship like Abraham did in giving a tithe to Melchizedek. So Lord, we want to be spiritually mature, and we know we can't do it on our own. 
So we ask in these moments that Holy Spirit, you'd come and, and give us strength, give us grace, give us confidence to be able to be what you've called us to be on that path to maturity. Lord, my also, I pray if there's anybody in this room that's never started that path of maturity by trusting Christ for the very first time for salvation, that today would be their day of salvation. They would see their need for a Savior, their, their need for Christ to come and forgive them of their sins, and they would repent of those sins and believe in Jesus alone for salvation so they could have their sins forgiven and eternal life, that today they would, they would do that. So, Lord Jesus, we need your help. We need your power to be what you've called us to be, to be on a path of maturity. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.